Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. God is incomprehensible in that His greatness is unsearchable. It's beyond us because He's infinite. He's incomparable because there's nothing to be compared to Him and He's solitary at the top pinnacle of the universe. There's nothing to be compared to Him. And yet He's knowable and He's approachable. And He wants us to know Him and approach to Him. And He's given us the means to do so. Let me share a few verses with you. I'm not sharing with you Psalm 27 and verse 8, where the Lord said to David, Seek ye my face. And David said, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. I'm not sharing with you Psalm 4 and verse 8, where it says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Unless you understand that I just did share them with you. Psalm 105 and verse 4. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. The young couple getting married in six days, Matthew and Anna, there is nothing that will make your marriage better, that will satisfy your souls more, that will give you more joy and happiness than seeking Him individually and then seeking Him together. The rest of us who have been married and are experts on the subject know this. Everyone in the church will tell you that. If you don't do it, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be disappointed in just a few hours. Don't be disappointed. It's Psalm 105, verse 4. The first three words. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. When should we give up on it? When should we think we know Him enough? When should we slow down? Never. We should seek Him evermore. Look at Isaiah 45 and verse 19. Oh, we want you two to be happy. But we know where real happiness comes from. It's fulfilling our destinies. And our destinies are to know God. Psalm 45 and verse 19. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. When the Lord says, seek the Lord, do you know what that means? He can be found. I wouldn't say it in vain. It's not a tiring exercise. It's going to be a rewarding exercise. Do you understand this verse? I speak in righteousness. When I say seek the Lord, there's benefits there to seek the Lord. You'll be able to find Him. I'll be there for you. I will draw nigh to you. Oh, the Lord's encouraging us. Psalm 50, I mean, Isaiah 55. You're in the book of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, the 6th verse. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. This is that passage I referred to earlier that describes his ways and thoughts higher than our ways and thoughts in verses 8 and 9. And his ways and thoughts being higher than ours in fact, infinitely higher, are in the matter of abundantly pardoning, which is the last part of verse 7. He will have mercy upon the wicked if the wicked will forsake his way and return to his God, and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's not like the way we interact with each other in comparison 
to God. But I want that sixth verse. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Sometimes God will withdraw himself because you have rejected him and neglected him for so long that then it takes a major work of repentance and a major revival before you can bring him back when he will draw nigh to you again because he wants to see how sincere you are. It took 70 years in Babylon before he came back to his temple in Jerusalem. But when he came back, he said, I'm going to fill this house with greater glory than the former house. You say, well, what if he withdraws from me? Why are you asking me that? You're the one that chased him away. Why don't you punish yourself? Why don't you pretend you're a prophet of Baal this afternoon and get yourself a knife and do some slashing on the person that's responsible? It's you. Humble yourself. Repent. Him that ordereth his conversation aright, I'll show the salvation of God. I want you to see the salvation of God. I want you to see the face of God. I want you to see His secret, which He reveals to us. There's much more that could be said. Do not say that you don't know Him or that He's hard to know. It's your fault. He's easy to know. He's a God that speaks in righteousness, and when He offers knowledge of Himself, He means it. Your inputs are wrong. If you have the world's inputs, that's going to feed your flesh, Your flesh is the enemy of God. God is the enemy of your flesh. You become God's enemy because you're feeding yourself with the world's inputs. If you're a woman and you start exalting your appearance, God is going to be your enemy. Your appearance your appearance is of very little significance to Him. What matters to Him is a meek and quiet spirit, shamefacedness and sobriety, and being clothed with good works and modesty. You do those things, God loves you. God loves you in a practical way, a relational way of coming to you and having sweet fellowship and communion with you. If you choose to say, I don't care what God thinks, when he said that a meek and quiet spirit is of great price in my sight, if you act that way by your life, don't tell me about why you don't know God. It's your fault. And I can go through every part of your life, like Nathan taught from Psalm 50 earlier today, you hated instruction. Through the Proverbs, through the daily devotionals, through what comes out of this pulpit, you every part of your life has been hit. If you're disobeying it, it's because you hate instruction, and God is going to be your enemy, and He's going to laugh at your calamity. Right. He's not going to be there when you call upon Him. But He is there for the wicked that will forsake His wickedness and turn to Him. Amen. Brethren, what are the five inputs? Daily Bible reading, daily prayer, Godly, spiritually-minded friends that fear and love God. Watch, making very careful about your music and making very careful about your entertainment. That you do not fill your heart and mind and soul even with a little bit of the world. It will dull your appetite for the Lord. It will turn Him against you. Don't blame Him because you don't know Him better. Don't And listen, when the feelings of knowing Him, when the joy and the exuberance may decline a little bit. Just keep believing by faith. He hasn't changed. You have changed. Mm -hmm. And just go to Him again and use the means He's given you, which means we hope to think about here for a few minutes. Eternal life is God's gift for the elect to know Him. And this is life eternal. Okay? That they might know Thee. This is Jesus Christ in prayer in John 17. 
And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God. Now that's the incomprehensible one. That they might know Thee. That is why God saved us. And His Son, Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. We know them both by eternal life. Thank You, Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We started out this morning with Psalm 115. The heathens say, where is their God? Because Israel didn't have an idol. There was just an altar. Visible. You know, the rest of the world couldn't get inside the tabernacle, and they couldn't get inside the temple, so all they saw was the altar. They never got to see the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim over it that the high priest got to see once a year. So they said, where is their God? What's the answer? But our God is in the heavens. Amen. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Your gods haven't done anything. And then there's that long laundry list of they can't see, smell, hear, touch, walk, move, or do anything. Because our God's in the heavens and he does anything he pleases. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. We want to believe that. We, it's hard for us to even comprehend how could someone be an idolater. Israel, the church of God in the Old Testament, were idolaters over and over and over. That is how much the world can influence the church of God. And that is how much you can be influenced and you will lose your love for God and He will send leanness into your soul even while He sends fatness maybe into your job or fatness into your family. And that's scary. Lord, give us leanness in our bank accounts and fatness in our soul way before you ever give us fatness in our bank accounts and leanness in our souls. We think about idolaters and we think they're absolute idiots. And they are. And the Lord mocks them in both Testaments. If you read Acts 17 last night, the Apostle Paul, in that short lesson, and we may get to it, we may not today, I have been very worked up about it, along with the point that I'm going to get back to in a moment that we ended the first service. In a few verses, the Apostle Paul, without appealing to the Bible, proved at a philosophical level to philosophers that there was a creator God that was nothing like they had ever put in their religion of the Greeks. And he does it bang, 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 about ten different points at least in just a few verses and a few minutes that they were idiots. They were superstitious. They were ignorant. And he was going to declare to them what they had to call was just an unknown God. And he's going to prove his existence on a philosophical level. Because God is very near to every one of us. And we should all be seeking after him. If haply, we might feel after him and find him. For he is not far from every one of us. Paul put himself in with the pagans. God is not watching from a distance. God is around us everywhere. We are created in His image and His likeness, so they will appeal, Paul will appeal philosophically to the being of man, proves that there is a being greater than man, but like man, because we are His offspring, and he'll quote one of their poets. God is so easily known. Men have wicked hearts that refuse 
to admit that he is what his revelation says he is because they want one they can manipulate. And we learned that thoroughly in Romans chapter 1 a couple years ago. Why am I in 2 Corinthians 10? Because I'm afraid that we do something as bad as being an idolater, and that is we distort God. How do we save ourselves from distorting Him? This is the balance. This is the list of counterpoints right here. You've distorted God. God isn't distorted. The Bible isn't distorted. You've distorted Him. And that's equal to idolatry. Because you create a God for your mind that doesn't exist. And the devil loves to help you in the matter. That way, you can create a God so fearful that you live in terror your whole life. Because you have refused to listen to His love, His forgiveness, His kindness, because you don't have any yourself. Or you're so meager in those categories yourself, you can't grasp it. Or you go to another ditch, and it's equally bad, and that is God is all love. He's just a big cotton candy God in the sky that wants to bury everybody on planet Earth with pleasure, prosperity, and peace. Joel Osteen's preaching that one today. That's a distortion of God. This is the balance. Right here, this is the balance. And it's all here. This is not an imbalanced book. The Old Testament is not imbalanced. The New Testament is not imbalanced. The God of love is just as visible in the Old Testament. I did not set my love upon you because you were the greatest of all people, but because you were the smallest of all people that I set my love upon you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's Old Testament. I will rest in my love. Zephaniah 3.17 In my love for you. So, the Bible deals mostly with idolatry. Taking stone, painting it with gold or silver, fashioning ears and eyes and hands and feet, And so we ridicule that. And we know that the Bible says they have a lie in their right hand. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. They take a tree, they use one-third of it to burn their food, to cook their food, and it burns up and it's gone. They use a third of it to warm themselves, and they say, Ah, I have been warmed by the fire. It says that, Isaiah 44. Then they, i got leftovers, because I I feel good now. I've got a full belly. What can I do with this? I'll make a God, and I'll pray to it. And the Lord just mocks them. But here's the problem. Let's forget all that. It's going to come up because it's throughout the Bible. Our sin is distorting God. They distort God into be a chunk of stone with eyes and ears. They make up a story about him. They make up character about him. That he does this. This is the God of travelers. This is the God of men at sea. This is the God of the military. This is the God of politics. And all these gods. The Greeks had 370 of them. The Hindus have... Billions. You know, the Romans were reasonable. They were down to around 30 or 40. Okay, what are you going to do? This is the balance. And the balance is absolutely, incredibly, infinitely perfect for you to put your trust in a being the likes of which you have never met at any time. No one else has ever loved you, ever cared about you, can ever be counted on anything like this God. 
When it talks about his fury, it excites me and gladdens me because I know that my enemies and the enemies of righteousness are going to be destroyed. That is comfort. When it talks about his love, he showed his love by sending his son. That is comfort. His love is eternal. It's not based on my conduct. It's based on the conduct of his son. You say, well, I believe in unconditional love. No, you don't. You can't even comprehend it nor define it. You can't write it in a sentence. You can't write it in a paragraph. It is non-existent. There is no such thing as unconditional love. You don't, you end up loving nothing. Nothing at all. There's always conditions to create an object for love. God doesn't love unconditionally. God loves conditionally because His Son, Jesus Christ, died, rose again, and yea, rather, is seated at His right hand, and that is why, and that is the grounds by which God loves me. And it never changes because it is conditional. If you've had your mind ruined with Greek, men will stand in the pulpits and say, God loves us with agape love. And all that we do is phileo each other with P-H-I-L-E-O love. And that's just friendship. But agape is real. Those are synonyms in the Bible. God's love is through His Son, Jesus Christ, which makes it unchangeable. And all that I'm trying to say right now is let's not make ourselves an idol of a ferocious God that we're terrified of and we run into the trees of the garden and we're as foolish as our first parents. And think that your little fig leaves are going to cover your nakedness in the sight of that holy God? Run to him naked. He'll clothe you. Oh, I mean, can you hold your finger at that place? That place is 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because I want to share with you Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. This is a very important point that I'm on right now. And I'm not making the progress that I had planned. But the Lord's in charge even though I try my best to meet a certain objective. I hope, Lord, help me. This is very important. We do not have, we do not deal with the threat of idolatry. We deal with the threat of distorting God. And we don't want to distort Him. And you with melancholy spirits, you'll distort Him. You with fearful spirits, you'll distort Him. I just want to remind you that when it gives me a description of who's in hell, it starts right off with the fearful. What in the world are you afraid of? It's the most love. Are you afraid to go home to your spouse? Are you afraid to fix a meal for your children? Why, why aren't you? How do you know that when you turn your back to them to pick up another dish from off the stove, that child isn't going to pick up a knife and stab you in the back? Well, because I know the child. <laughs> Come to me after the service. You don't know your children at all. That is why you beg and pray and plead and hope that someday they might tell you 1% of what they're thinking. I know everything about God that He wants me to know so that I can put my trust in Him. And if that were death right there, I can cast myself off of death into His arms. Amen. I do not... I don't want a distortion in our church. I don't want to preach a distortion... I want us to know the true and living God. I love His fury because His fury is against wickedness. He doesn't see me as wicked. I am wicked. But all my wickedness has been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I love His fury. At least somebody is going to stand up for what is right and destroy the enemies. 
It's comforting to me. I had to share this one with you. Ezekiel 15, I mean, Ezekiel 16 is a love story that is fabulous. We've been through it before. Do you know this love story? As Verse 4, as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Nobody loves you. Are you kidding? You say, my parents, no, they don't. What have they ever done for you? Which one died for you? Well, they fixed me three squares a day. Oh, do you know what? Every penitentiary in this state fixes three squares a day. You say, well, they gave me clothes. Every penitentiary in this state provides clothes. They did the, every penitentiary in this state provides laundry. Don't tell me that you know anything about love, because you don't. There's only one standard of love in the universe, and it's this one right here. As for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water. To supple thee thou wast not salted at all, nor swallowed at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. That is what you are by nature. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood... I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field that goes on to describe this little girl growing up to be a beautiful woman, all because of God's mercy toward her. I want the 14th verse. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. Israel became beautiful, the people of God, the church of God. And thy renown, that's the reputation, went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect, perfectly beautiful, through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Everyone is beautiful. Everyone chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began is beautiful. How do I know that I was chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began? Because you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Proves that you were chosen in Him before the world began. And God's comeliness is upon you. And He sees you as, what kind of beauty? It's a P word. Perfect. Perfect beauty. This is the God we want to know. This is the same God that the mountains and the rocks are thrown down by him and the wicked melt as wax before the fire who drowned the earth with a flood. The earth deserved to be drowned. Let's give the Lord a round of applause for drowning the earth with the flood. Why doesn't that excite you and comfort you? I'm glad that somebody is going to stand up and do what is right. Listen, there was a family singing hymns inside the ark. Then they played Monopoly. They had a long time to wait. They didn't play long because they had to go feed some animals. Okay. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 10. You know, my my fear is we're going to look at Mount Sinai and all we're going to see is this mountain is shaking and Moses trembling and quaking. But now that's Exodus 19. Is that Exodus 19? It's Exodus 19. 
Is that Exodus 19? That's Exodus 19. If an animal crosses the boundary, it must be thrust through with darts. The trumpet sound and the voice of God was waxing louder and louder till the people could not bear it. But that's the law. If you want to know what that picture is supposed to represent, that's Romans chapter 5, the last two verses. And the law entered that the offense might abound. That's just God showing us how sinful we are. His law was perfect. Every one of His commandments was perfect. But there's another mountain. And it's Mount Zion. And we've come to that mountain. And there's blood there available that has been sprinkled on us by election from before the world began. And sacrifice is better than Abel ever offered. And the spirits of just men made perfect. I want you to see both mountains. If you focus on Mount Sinai too much, you've distorted God. If you focus on Mount Zion too much, you've distorted God. Because that God has some righteous demands for our lives. And that God, that righteous God, can only love those that are righteous. But thankfully, He makes us righteous through Christ Jesus. Lord, if I have ever misled this congregation intentionally, which I know not, or ignorantly, in distorting our view of Thee, Forgive us and show us. But as of right now, I see your scriptures so plainly, clearly, with great certainty of how wonderful you are to put your trust in you for time and eternity. I thank thee for thy great power. I thank thee for thy righteousness and I thank thee for thy holiness. I thank thee that there is one being that I can put my trust in who is absolutely of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. I thank Thee that there is a God that will say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Because my sins and iniquities, Thou canst not remember anymore because of Jesus Christ. That is the balance we want. Here we go. This is my job as your pastor. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. This is what I have to do with everyone and me. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Paul is saying, though we ministers walk in the flesh and still have fleshly existences here, our ministries are not based on fleshly skill. They're spiritual skills. Verse 4, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. What we do ministerially and the battles that we fight ministerially are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So there's a war. And here's the war. Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. But I want that fifth verse. My job and my desire is to cast down your imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against this knowledge of God and to bring every thought into captivity that runs wild on you from time to time. If I could crawl into you and rip those thoughts out, you have to get rid of them. 
You have to say that it's not what the Bible says. And you have to believe it by faith. You have to flush it. A storm? I'm sorry for those of you that are afraid of storms. Get over it. He's whispering to you. I've said that for, I guess, 54 years since I was one. He's whispering to you. Psalm 29 is all about it. Do you think that it's just happening willy-nilly out there? Do you think he's going to come and chase you and he hasn't told you that you're doing something wrong in your life and that he hasn't convicted you and plainly put you on notice that you're doing something wrong, but he just likes to scare people? Where, Where did you get that idea? Wow. He makes the cedars of Lebanon to dance. He causes the hinds to calve. He does all kinds of things with thunder. And yes, he can bring the sweat out on me if it's close enough, but I still like it. I like it when it's so close that it rip, it's like canvas is being ripped in the air because it's right outside your window. And you can rap. There's no separation between the lightning and the thunder. Then it's sweet. Why? Because that God has made the flowers and the sunshine and the stars and the moon and the seashore and the seashells and a little girl named Mary Grace and birds and butterflies and and everything. And the heavens declare the glory of God. You say, well, it just sounds all contradictory to me. Are you kidding? I'm enjoying it and I'm hoping that my neighbors that are Hindus are listening I hope you heard that one. Rama can't do that. But Jehovah can. Look at that fifth verse. Do you have imaginations that scare you? Do you have high things that exalt themselves sometimes against the knowledge of God and the things you've been taught? Do you have thoughts that sometimes get away from you? It's not worth trying to serve Jesus Christ. He's too scary. God's too scary. There's the verse. So now you see my job. And because my spirit isn't your spirit, but there is a spirit in both of us, and the spirit in both of us is able to take my words to you, because I trust him. What does 100% mean? Just too pitiful to say. I fully trust him. I want you to fully trust Him. Because that's what it really means to know God. Because it's going to result in you trusting Him. It's going to result in you delighting in Him. It's going to result in your life being a journey and you enjoying the ride. Because you're going along with the Lord. You're not holding any man's coattails. And forgive me if I ever gave that impression to anyone. We're all holding on to the coattails of the Lord Jehovah who rides on the clouds and will take me to his pavilion and put me in his secret place. And do you know what I love to hear when I'm in his secret place? The crashing of the guns around me. Because I know the guns are in my defense. I know the guns are just to remind me that outside, what is a pavilion? Am I, have, I lost, have I lost you? The pavilion's the big tent 
in the center of a sitting encamped army. And that's where God dwells. It's where the king goes. And he takes me into his secret compartment. And in his secret compartment, all the angels' tents are as far as the eye can see in every direction. And the big guns are going off. And oh, it feels good to hear the ground shake and to know that those guns are going to protect me from any enemy. I want to tell you, if you were ever in war, you would want the biggest guns on your side. Or doesn't that make sense to you? Does it say that in the Bible, what I'm talking about to you right now? Is it in Psalm 27? Might it be the fifth verse that He'll hide me in the secret compartment of His tabernacle? What's a tabernacle? It's a tent. What is a tent? When it's the king's tent, it's the pavilion in the center. And He takes us in there. And do you know what is scattered abroad? And I've told you this before. Do you know what is scattered abroad as far as the eye can see? Other tents. And do you know who inhabits those tents? The angels of God. Do you know what it's like to meet one of them? Oh, I meet them every day. They've saved me many times. So for me to meet them, it is one pleasant experience. I met one recently in an accident. But you know what? When my enemies meet them, it's not pleasant. Because the Lord says He's going to let the angel of the Lord chase them. And those are all those tents. I have got off subject here. It's not off subject. I've got got off my pages of work this week. But if I fail in preaching this, and you are still messed up because of your imagination and your thoughts, and you haven't brought them into captivity, and I haven't helped you get them into captivity, I have failed. Because this God is unbelievable. I love thunder. I'm in the secret place of His pavilion. And when the big guns go off, the bigger they are, the more secure I feel. Say, well, I just can't make that happen. Well, how do we do it? Do we get you fireworks for 365 nights in a row and do the best we can, but we let one or two loose that just about get you and then remind you that God never has anything get away from Him? Do you know that lightning has never got away from the Lord? You say, well, what if He's aiming it for me? Oh, what a sweet way to go. Can you imagine a bolt of lightning right in the chest? Do you know how long you'd have to think about that one? Well, sometimes they do think about it because they survive it. You're in heaven. You say, well, how do I know He wants to take me to heaven? Because His Son Jesus died for you and nothing, not in heaven or hell, not in the earth, the sea, not in time or eternity, not in height nor in depth, not angels nor principalities can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know that I'm in that love. Then fall before Him and believe on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and say, God, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is truly your Son, and I will live for Him, and I will obey Him. Show me whatever I'm not doing in my life, and I will do it. No one has ever said that that is not one of His elect. The words will be spoken from from heaven, and they will shatter every enemy and every bit of opposition. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And do you think there was anything that could have kept that thief from paradise? 
Not all the devils of hell. Not all the enemies of men. Nothing could have kept that thief from paradise. What are you worried about? You say, well, I'm a sinner. Oh, the bigger you are, the more likely you've been saved. How thankful are you that you're a sinner? That he saved you from your sins. Mary Magdalene had seven devils cast out of her. David committed aggravated adultery and murder. Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ in his deepest hour of need. So what? Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? Lord, you know I do love you. Three times. I think it's very fair. You think that's mean? I think that's very fair. Because you know what he got after each one? Feed my sheep. You are my man. I love you. And though you messed up in front of all the apostles, you're my man. You're in charge. Take care of these sheep and lambs when I leave. And you lead. You lead as we approach Pentecost and you get the thing set in order. And you replace Judas Iscariot. You're my man. And you fear him? Enoch walked with God and just went right up into heaven in the 365th year of his life. You know more about God than Enoch did. How much of this had Enoch ever read? None. Not a single verse of it existed. Oh, the great sinners love the most. The Apostle Paul, you think you've got sins? Why don't you write them on a list for me so we can burn it together? Saul of Tarsus killed Christians. He caused Christians and forced them by torture to blaspheme. And he did it with great zeal and he did a lot of it over many years. Many he cast into prison. He helped get them killed. And yet he said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What had Saul of Tarsus committed to him? The safekeeping of his soul. It says that we're able to commit our souls unto him as to a faithful creator. If any of you blame me for distorting God, show me my error and I'll help us find the balance. But there's only one balance I'll accept, and it's not yours, and it's not mine. I love this balance of the Word of God. When Paul stood up on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, the court, the highest court of Athens, Greece, adjacent to the temple to Mars, they're one of their 370 gods, did he quote John 3.16 and Acts 17.22 through 31? Did he quote John 3.16 or anything even close to it? Nope. Not a chance. He started out with, what you call an unknown God just shows your ignorance and your superstition. This is the most intellectual audience ever seen. I'm not going to deal with it today. That's why I'm not turning to it because I'll get too excited. The Lord's had me convicted so much the last few days about Acts 17. <clears throat> He didn't quote John 3.16. He didn't quote 1 John where it says God is love. He said God that created all things. 
isn't worshipped in a temple. He doesn't dwell in temples. He's not worshipped with men's hands. And he just progresses and he proves the existence of God by philosophy to philosophers where they could not deny that what he was saying was reasonable truth. Quoting even their own prophet. But he didn't say anything about the love of God. You can read Acts, all 28 chapters. There are 13 forms of the word love in the New Testament scriptures. Not one occurs in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles of Evangelism of the World. Because that's not how you get started. You get started by showing everyone there's a creator. And he is a God of providence. And he is a God that you have a being in, you have a, you are a being with a spirit inside you like him. And God's made all nations equal. So it doesn't matter whether you're the aborigine with a boomerang in the interior of Australia or you're a Greek philosopher sitting in Athens. You're all the same. That happily, by creation, by providence, by the spirit that you have within you, by the knowledge that God, who made all things, certainly isn't worshipped with gold and silver, should be sought after. If happily, they might feel after him and find him, for he is not very far from every one of us. That is just... And then Paul went on to say, you Greeks that have taken so much pride in your civilization... You are ignorant and superstitious, and you philosophers that have any sense right now know that what I have just said is the truth, and what I have just said proves that your fathers, Aristotle, Plato, and all the rest, were ignoramuses. And God winked at that. God allowed you under Alexander for a few years to conquer the known world. But those were times that he had determined beforehand It was all in the providence of God. It wasn't the God fate. It wasn't your gods. It wasn't military superiority. That's all in that passage. You read it last night, so you're supposed to know all this already. I just want to refresh you. You Greeks don't know what you're talking about. That God can be found. Your poets have admitted it, and you should find him. And God winked at your Gentile ignorance in times past, but things have changed and God has sent his apostles out like a little man like me from Jerusalem. And you should repent. Because God is going to judge the world in righteousness. They already knew about the judgment of God because it's revealed in creation, his eternal power and Godhead. They believe that there's a judgment coming and he's just telling them who the judge is going to be. This creator God is going to judge all men in righteousness. And he's given assurance unto all men, including you philosophers, that this is the way it's going to happen because he's raised him from the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So the apostle Paul works himself up to a punch against Greek philosophy after he had proved the existence of his God. Him whom whom ye ignorantly worship, him... I declare unto you, without using a Bible. There's so much evidence there, it deserves more time than I can give it today. Let me finish with the point that I finished the first service with. If I ask you to tell me 
about the person that you think you know the best and love the most, I want you to describe him to me. I want you to describe her to me. She's kind. Let me live in your home for 48 hours. And I will take notes of all the times she's not kind. When she's selfish. Lazy. Okay? So remember, I let you start. You started by saying they're kind. Well, we're... When they have the first bad day at work, I want you to call me or email me and tell me what they were like when they got home and how much loving you had that night. Because, remember, you told me they're kind. Because you're trying to tell me about this person you know so well and love so much. You don't know what you're talking about. There's no one in here that knows what they're talking about. Because you're all talking about someone with a spirit that you don't have and that you don't know. You're talking about a sinner that is going to fail. You're talking about someone that is very much affected by circumstances. You're talking about someone very much affected by moods. You don't know anything. Now let me tell you about someone. Is he kind? He has showered me with goodness before I was born. He picked my parents, and he picked my grandparents, and he picked what was going to happen to me in my life, and it was wonderful. Every bad thing I've ever experienced was my fault. He has always been kind. He is still always kind. And every time I turn to him, he is kind. He's always kind. I'm not kind. I'm unkind. I forget him, but he never forgets me. I know someone that is kind. And I know them because they wrote me and put it in writing and because they're in me. You don't know the spirit of the person you're talking about. God's spirit is in us. We could preach in the kindness of God and the loving kindness of God for a long time. Just give me another minute or two. I say, what else about this person that you know and love so much? Why do you think you know them? Well, they forgive me. May I talk to that person after you've given me a list of the ten most offensive things you've done to them? Okay? Give me that list so that I can bring that up and just let me twist a little bit, twist a knife in them, in their soul, on the ten things that you offended them the most with, that you hurt them the most with. You know, I'll record it for you so that you can hear what I'm able to get out of them that you think are so forgiving. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. You don't, you've never met anyone that knows how to forgive. And it certainly isn't me. And it certainly isn't you in case you just got haughty in one second. <laughs> because His ways are higher than our ways Amen. and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts right. as the heaven is above the earth. Right. You think that you know someone that they're forgiving and you love them because they've forgiven you? Even though I am going to get them to show rather easily that they probably hate you at some level of their subconscious, 
it still is no offense against them like you have offended God. Because it is 100 pence to them, but it is 10,000 talents against God. And God has taken my 10,000 talents, and it's probably a million with me, and throw them away. He is faithful and just to forgive me. And all I have to do is confess. I don't have to live in good behavior for a week before I'm forgiven. He just forgives. And he does it over and over the same offense. You don't know God, but you know your spouse, you know your children, you know your parents, you know your neighbors, you know your grandparents. No, you don't. You know God, and you know Him better than you that you're admitting to yourself. He's right here in writing. He's right here dwelling in us. Right. He's in the creation. He's in the providence. He has put you in this place this day to hear this message because He loves you and because He's faithful. Amen. You can count on Him. You can trust in Him. You can cast yourself out of life into death and pass through that dark curtain right into His arms. He will never drop you. Everyone else that you've ever put your trust in can, has, or will drop you. Never the Lord. This is the God I want to teach you about knowing. And I wish I knew how to preach. Just read, read this and consider some of these thoughts and think about this closing verse, which I've already given to you last Lord's Day or the week before. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? I put it to you this way. You don't know me, and I don't know you. Your inner thoughts, fears, hopes, ambitions, worries, I don't really know them because I have my own set and your set's different from mine because you have your spirit and I have my spirit. What man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? You can't know me because only my spirit knows me. I can't know you because only your spirit truly knows you. Even so, in exactly this way, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. God has a spirit And everything that makes God the being that He is and the attributes that He is is known by His Spirit. I can't go into your spirit. You can't come into my spirit. No big loss for either of us. But God can come into us by His Spirit, and He does. And He has His Spirit has put in writing where He stands on everything. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things Paul said also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Where do you want to stop in this chapter? I want to go back and get verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Stop. Don't read ahead on me. Sorry. 
this person that you know so well and love so much, I want to tell you something. They ain't going to give you anything that a million other guys haven't given to their girls. Every eye has seen what you're going to get, and every ear has heard what you're going to get, and really, most have seen and heard better things than you're going to get from this person that you know so well and love so much. Am I getting across to anybody? But there's things that I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man that God's prepared for them that love him. But God's revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I don't know how to improve on that language. The Spirit searches the deep things of God, and he's inside me. You say, well, I don't feel that he's inside me. Okay, well, it's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of faith that he's inside you, what the Bible says. But ask yourself, have you grieved him in any way? Are you grieving him right now in your life because you have some unconfessed sin? Have you quenched the power? Have you prayed for him recently to pray for the Spirit to reveal the love of Christ to you so that the love of God can be shed abroad in your heart? Because when it's shed abroad in your heart, bring the big one. Do I always feel this way? Oh, no. But I'm going to tell you something. When I don't feel that way, I certainly would never blame God. And I would certainly never blame me for not knowing God. I would blame me for knowing God and not living rightly in front of and before God. Do you understand the difference of all that I just said? Lord, help us. This passage is absolutely phenomenal. It's the justification for the point that I made to you closing out the first service and now this one. You don't really know anyone. But you can know God easily at a much deeper level of ab- with absolute assurance of what he's like because he never changes. He never lies. He never exaggerates. He never forgets. He never fails. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.